All right, hockey fans, listen up because we've got something special cooked up for playoff season. It's called the Daily Faceoff Playoff Parlay Challenge, and it's going to add some serious spice to your playoff experience. Now, here's the deal every playoff game, you're going to be faced with a handful of questions. It's like your own personal playoff puzzle, and it's free to join. And there are prizes because who doesn't love winning stuff? Daily winners, you're getting hooked up with gift cards. Treat yourself to some nation gear or maybe even your favorite jersey. And for the big dogs, the people who can win an entire round, it's straight, cold, hard cash. We're talking about real dough for your hockey knowledge. So lace up those skates, stretch those thumbs, and get ready to show off your hockey IQ in the daily face-off playoff parlay challenge. Sign up today and play every game day at games.dailyfaceoff.com and prove your puck prowess. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Can you see it? Did you notice? Checked, but the puck comes right to Pedersen, who tries a bank pass for Besser. In with a shot, he scores! Moments notice. here like I don't I don't cover the Canucks yeah. I cover Quinn Hughes and what he's doing to the Canucks just wave the guy and get Demko involved I wanted them in and down wow we should do a radio show together <laughs> right on I want to fist bump you right now Pearl steals cutting in shoots scores Don't waste all the good stuff on the off air. Let's go. Oh, 
Hello Canucks fans, welcome back to another episode of the Canucks Conversation. We're one day off my birthday, I had a great day yesterday, uh, had a couple of parallel 49 beers to go with it. Didn't have any sports cards though, but if you guys are looking for sports cards, be sure to check out Zephyr Epic, the presenters of the Canucks Conversation podcast. Make sh- be sure to use our promo code Hockey Season. All one word, capital H, capital S, hockey season. That'll get you $5 off your order. And free shipping to all of Canada. I said all the way out to Newfoundland and they confirmed it. They will deliver to Newfoundland. So ZephyrEpic.com, check it out. Get your hockey cards there. Be sure to use the promo code. My name is Chris Faber and I have a fill-in co-host this week. David Quadrelli is still day-to-day. I think he might be back for the weekend episode. But he had his wisdom teeth taken out. So filling in for him. From The Athletic, you know him on Twitter at HarmonDial2, and you know him as Harmon, one of the smartest guys in the market. So, Harm, how you doing today, man? I'm doing great, Chris. Thanks for having me on, and uh, thanks for uh, thanks for speaking English here. I, I wasn't sure what language to expect after you and uh, you and Roussel had, <laughs> uh, had a little French interaction, so I'm glad that we're sticking to English for this one. Yeah, it was <laughs> good. Like Maybe I'll sprinkle some in with you and, and see how you get to this thing. Like, you said you understood half the question that I asked him. Yeah, like I heard, uh, like I heard Shivaparl or whatever. Like I want to ask, so I understood that part, and then you picked up speed. And then as soon as you started talking fast, I was like, I do not understand at all. Like I've, I took French until grade eleven in high school just because we had to, and you know, kind of, you know, it wasn't something I particularly enjoyed. So I just tried to do whatever I could to just get through it. So definitely not a master at it. So. Probably going to be pretty rusty, to be completely honest with you. <laughs> yeah, I'll go easy on you. That like what you just said is how I feel when people that actually speak French speak it. Like I'm like I'm good when they're talking slow, and then they just crank it right off, and I'm completely lost at that point. But yeah, that was a lot of fun. I mean, we did the the Canucks did their final wrap up today, and and PJ was just tweeting it out now that there's going to be nothing to follow, no players to follow. So I guess we got what was it six or seven players today? Does that kind of shock you a little bit that we aren't going to hear from the likes of? You know, JT Miller, Nate Schmidt, Brock Besser, Niels Huglander, like Thatcher Demko, another name. Like, it's kind of surprising to me that we aren't going to hear from these guys over the next couple days, I think. I think considering the circumstances, six or seven guys is honestly better than I expected. I mean, obviously, at a normal year-end availability, they cycle in guys and, um, you know, you'll... It all it obviously usually happens at Rogers Arena and you have the podium set up and it's kind of three three guys all at once and they kind of come in these groups whereas in this kind of sequence it has to be one-on-one um and so because of that it just timing wise and the the logistical challenges too of having to do it over zoom i'm not surprised at all and actually i'm pleasantly surprised at how many guys we got today to be completely honest with you yeah, and I think, you know, leading it off was Alex Edler, and I think that there's a lot to break down from his quotes and just the way that he was answering questions. But, you know, I, you know, when they sent him out first, I was thinking, like, are we going to hear about, like, a retirement announcement? Like, is that the reason why Alex Edler's coming out here first? But maybe he just played his veteran card and wanted to get it done with and get out of there. But was there anything that you kind of picked up from the Alex Edler conversation and some of the quotes that we kind of got from him in that Zoom call? Yeah, I think just for starters, um, I mean, obviously the big takeaway is he wants to play next season, no plans to retire, right. uh, which is, you know, interesting because I think when I watched the way the year kind of went and 
um, you know, just how adamant the team was about trying to get him that hundredth goal. I, you know, part of me wondered, like, is this the final? Um, is, is could this potentially be it? But no, he seemed pretty confident about wanting wanting to come back this season, wanting to come back next season. Um, and so that's going to be a very interesting decision for the Canucks in terms of how they try and, you know. They used him as a primary matchup defender this year. He was their 1A option on the penalty kill, still averaged over 20 minutes a night. Um, it's But the way the year went for him, I think it became abundantly clear that that kind of high-leverage role is too much for him at this stage of his career. And so it's going to be fascinating to see if the Canucks bring him back, just what kind of role are we talking about, what kind of contract... Um, and how would the left side kind of look if you have Hughes, you know, you're hoping Rathbone gets penciled in somewhere mm-hmm. onto the left side. And, you know, if you're hoping Endler plays in a reduced role, it's it's interesting because you're kind of hoping that Rathbone's in that third pair kind of role as well. Um, and so the question I kind of have is who's going to play that kind of second pair big minutes um because ideally it's not Edler, but yeah, I mean, I, to me that was the biggest takeaway um, from that. Um, and and aside from that, you know, there were a couple other things, but um, you know, him coming back is is, is something that um, you know it may it may not be in Vancouver or it remains to be seen. But um, fascinating to to fascinating storyline as we head into the offseason for sure oh absolutely and i think that like you bring up a good point what's what does the minutes look like for him next year what does the contract look like for him next year and and i think those are some some huge questions to ask because there definitely is a way that alex edler can help this team i mean his veteran presence is one thing and you know to wash their hands with the last guy from the 2011 run maybe is a good thing about moving forward and kind of ripping the band-aid off that's maybe been on for a few too many years but there's, there's still parts of his game that definitely help this Vancouver Canucks team. I mean, you brought up the minutes that he's playing, still over 20 minutes all season long, and a lot of those minutes are big penalty-killing time that he's going to be able to do, and I think that a lot of people have floated the idea of potentially seeing a left side that is Quinn Hughes, Olia Levy, and Jack Rathbone, and that's, that's a lot to ask from a young group to be in there. When you have a veteran presence like Edler stepping up and being the first guy out on the penalty kill, there is a lot of parts where he can help this team, but... It's clear, and it's not breaking news to tell anyone, that Alex Edler's foot speed and the way that he kind of just processes the game, it, it just is, isn't what it used to be, and it's definitely at a slower pace compared to the other NHLers that he's with. But with Olia Levy not really being able to step up and kill penalties yet, like it almost feels like to me, and, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this, but like it feels like to me that it's almost written in, in ink, like the ink is dried, that Alex Edler is going to be back with the Canucks next year, and it's just depending on what the money's going to be like for me. Yeah, it's, you know, and that's where, again, Vancouver's stance on what exactly Edler is at this stage of his career is really important. Because as you mentioned, there's no way the Canucks are going to roll Hughes, Rathbone, and Ulevi on the left side next year. They're going to, even if they did decide to move on from Edler, they'd be bringing in um, another kind of veteran steady presence to to fulfill the minutes that Edler kind of chewed up. And specifically when you look at the defensive skill set, right? Like, we know that Edler has issues with the speed and um, and not being able to help out in transition, but his his PK impact and just overall the defensive assertiveness and in zone 
um, defensive skills, how he defends below the hash marks and boxes guys out in front of the net. Like that's a stylistic element that the Canucks just don't have, right? Like how many defenders on this team could you really comfortably trust defensively to defend a lead for you, right? And it's those kind of situations where, uh, I mean, when you look at a lot of the other pieces on the back end, right, where, you know, you look at Hughes, you look at Myers, you look at um, even, uh, you know, Rathbone next year, to a lesser extent, even Nate Schmidt. These are players that are more offensively calibrated. These are puck movers. These are guys that love to skate, love to create offense, love to pinch. And you kind of need that um, steadying defensive presence still. Um, but as you mentioned, you know, it's it's going to be interesting because if the Canucks don't think that Edler is equipped to really play top four minutes anymore, then it becomes a case of, yeah, you need his skill set, but how exactly would he fill in um, in terms of a, a roster spot where you know, you want Rathbun to play as well, right? Um, so, I mean, I agree. I think um, I think you are likely to see him back on a one-year deal. But, again, the question to me comes down to, are the Canucks really going to trot out Alex Adler as their primary matchup defender again? Because the way things went for him this season, um, I just, you know, I'm not very optimistic on on how he'd fare in that kind of, of role. I think he needs, um, I think he needs a reduced kind of, um, again, re- reduced role to, to really be successful and excel. Yeah, and I think that spot where you need to find him getting those most important minutes is just going to happen to be on the penalty kill, right? I mean, that's where he doesn't have to skate as much. It's a lot about positioning. It's a lot about something that he's done a lot of in his career as a penalty killer. And, you know, that's that's a thing that, that I wanted to see from a guy like Olya Levy this season. You know, I wanted to see him in penalty killing situations. I wanted him to get an opportunity over a guy like Jalen Chatfield, who got some penalty kill time this year. And I think that's a big knock on your Levy's step in development. And I wouldn't mind getting into him with you here because me and quads have had our battles on your Levy. Uh, I'm still a little bit of only your Levy truther. I I'm aware that the parts of his game that are lacking are his ability to defend quickly, but him setting up in the defensive zone is a spot where I wanted to see him excel this year. And to me, the the situation just never presented itself, whether that's Travis Green not trusting a young guy on the penalty kill or him just believing that, you know, Grayback or sorry, Chatfield's a better option, right? Like, I think that Yolevi is going to be a piece that you kind of touched on with Alex Edler being a more defensive minded guy. Because you look at it, you mentioned Schmidt, Hughes. Uh, Rathbone and these guys are more offensive players Tyler Myers to a degree as well like that's why I like the fit of Olya Levy moving into this team in the future and I know he's not going to live up to his draft he's probably not going to be a top four but to me Levy is a defensive defenseman he just needs to really improve on actually defending for him to be a guy who you can trust to play in the NHL so I'm wondering like do you think that those conversations are going on at all to say like maybe it's time to trust Levy a little bit more or do you think that just from what he proved this year that they they really can't go that direction and, and walk away from Edler because of that? Yeah, I mean, I got to say this: if you're counting on Ole Levy to really step up and um, and for him to chew up some of those tougher assignments, or just generally take up at least some of the workload and kind of have a platoon between him and Rathbone, I just I'm personally not confident in Levy's ability to step up into a more prominent role here. And, and you kind of mentioned, kind of nailed it where, 
you think and kind of hope that he can be a defensively oriented piece. And yet, because of the foot speed issue, he can't particularly defend well. And um, I think overall, when you look at the kind of campaign he had, look, I, you know, I'm, I'm happy for him that he was healthy, that he got NHL games, that, um, you know, he's, he's fine. He's a fine depth piece, right? Um, I have no issues with him there, but ultimately I'm not sure what his ceiling is beyond being a number six or seven defenseman, to be completely honest with you. I mean, you look at the way he was sheltered so significantly this season. Ultimately, when you carve out that kind of opportunity for a player, you need some kind of a bottom line for that player to really stick. And what I mean by that is either that guy needs to create a little bit of offense from that sheltered third pair position, which you love he didn't with just three points in 22 games. Or if he's not doing that, then at least he needs to be um, someone who is a dependable penalty killing presence. And you love he's killed penalties in Utica, but he hasn't become that yet at the NHL level. And so from that perspective, I mean, I just look at a guy like Ulevi, and the biggest question I have is if you're hoping for a player like that to really be a prominent NHL piece on your back end, like the question I keep coming back to is what exactly is Ulevi's identity as a player? Like yeah. when, what is his label? And what I mean by that is like when he was drafted, it was, you know, he's this mobile two-way puck mover who can add value in the offensive zone the mobile part has left him because of because of injuries and you know he can make a good outlet pass which i like but he's not a puck mover because he doesn't have the agility to escape forechecking pressure right like if you go into a series like i i think back to uh the vegas series in the bubble if you thrust Ulevi into that kind of environment he's just not going to be able to move the puck against that kind of forechecking pressure so he's not exactly, in my mind, an above-average puck mover. Um, you know, the offense isn't really there and doesn't kill penalties. And defensively, he likes some elements of his game, like his defensive reads. But again, it's about when he's defending space. I mean, he got burned by Josh Levo. And so, I mean, that's not a good look, especially for, you know, if you're hoping for a guy like that to have more opportunity, you can't really give him that because the higher up the lineup you face in terms of competition the tougher the task becomes so to me again i think you is fine depth but you know i don't i don't know if he's much beyond a competent number six or seven right it's you know it's it's crazy to believe that he's going to be the guy that's filling that 20 minutes night that edler would potentially leave if he does go to another team and i i think with you levy the thing that i think is like, I don't think that he's at the 22-year-old point of being a, a prospect and developing. Like, I think that he's worse behind that because I, I look at Vasily Podkolzin. He's played three times as many games as Olevi has over the past three seasons. Uh, Jet Wu's another good example. He's played twice as many games as Olevi has in the past three seasons. I just feel like with Olevi, like, the development, it started, right? And getting him into NHL games is a big point of that development. But I think that there's a lot of room for him to still grow. At 22 years old, you want to see something from him at the NHL. And I think you did see that. I just feel like there's a lot of room for him to still grow because his body simply let him down, right? I mean, like, it's it's been really tough for him those two years in Utica. And I, I have a feeling that there is still, you know, he, he's never going he's never going to get to that ceiling. But I'm hoping that he gets to the floor over the next couple of years. And I just think that there is something there. Like, there's a smart hockey player there. 
And now that his body has shown that it can be healthy for, like, I'm not going to say a full season. The dude played 23 games. But the fact that he was able to stay healthy and no injuries were kind of lingering on for him, I think that this year is still a step in the right direction for Ole Olevi. Yeah, I mean, just the fact, simple fact that he was in the NHL, um, we didn't know if he could do that coming into the season. So, I mean, by and large, it's, you know, a, a successful campaign for him. But, you know, the thing I come back to, come back to is you don't get that development time back as a young player and you levy he's 23 years old right now just um recently a few weeks ago turned 23 um i don't know how much runway there realistically is left for development especially because a lot of it is now like what you need from him is physical kind of improvement in terms of his skating and that because of some of the past issues he's had with injuries is a little bit tougher, right? Because a lot of the development that happens with young players as they're kind of coming up early in the league is things like pattern recognition, um, understanding how to process plays, um, getting adjusted to the pace of play just in terms of reads and um, how to support the puck and, you know, a lot of, you know, fitting into a system and, and things of that kind of nature, you know, filling out some of your, uh, individual skill sets whereas i just think that for you levy you know he can improve in other areas and you know i'd like to see him add kind of versatility as you know for instance as a penalty killing piece as you kind of mentioned yeah um that's an area where i think he could have some value but you know i i think his you know the skating could be insurmountable uh as an obstacle um to be quite honest with you i just um there are just too many red flags there for, for me personally to be confident in him to be a guy that you, you know, one day trust to play 20 minutes a night. So that's kind of my view on him right now. Again, I'd love to be proven wrong. I mean, you know, you, you really feel for the guy given all the injury that he's been through, the expectation. Um, and, you know, even this season wasn't ideal in terms of, you know, we had Travis Green talk about, because of cap reasons, they couldn't get him into game action as much as they would have wanted midseason. Right. Um, but I'm not getting my hopes up too high, to be quite honest, on Ole Levy. I found it kind of interesting. Like, I just wrote in an article that's, that Dave's actually been putting off because I know he doesn't want to put out a positive Levy article uh, on Cubs Army <laughs> at all. Uh, but I, I just found, like, just from doing some digging on Natural Stat Trek and seeing the matchups that he had, I only was able to do two teams. But when he played against the Ottawa Senators and the Calgary Flames, 21% of the time was spent against the other team's first line. And that's what's both of the Kachuk lines, actually, in those situations. So, like, how protected was he, though? Because I know, Harm, you're a lot better at this than I am. Like, maybe my stats were just wrong, but, like, how protected was Yulevi's season, really, this year? I think it was pretty protected. I think a lot of, you know, sometimes when um, you have some of those minutes, like, I, I definitely do remember there were a couple of games where he saw a little bit of action, um, here and there, but um, you know, a lot of that too can sometimes be, you know, at the end of a shift where you know you're either stuck or guys are kind of still changing. Mm-hmm. Um, and those minutes, um, like I remember Tyler Dello, who now works for the Devils, kind of dove into this before, um, where it's like in some of those minutes, you know, a guy can kind of, you know, like the time on ice may show that there was some action share, but. You know, ultimately, it wasn't a whole lot, proportionally speaking. Right. And that's kind of where 
I mean, a lot of the a lot of the data that I can see, um, for instance, if you go on Hockey Viz um, and their quality of competition metric, mm-hmm. it does show that Ilovi was one of the most sheltered defensemen on the team, but also just generally from a league wide scope that he spent. Um, a lot of his time kept away from top six competition. So by and large, I think the data shows that, yeah, he, he really didn't, you know, he was pretty, he was very, um, his matchups were, were very carefully prescribed, which isn't, you know, uncommon to see of Travis Green, which, you know, and, and that's another thing that I've just generally found interesting about the way he deploys certain players is that he's very deliberate and calculated um, and how he matches guys up. Like, if you looked at the Canucks' four groups this year, you know, I don't think that there was a team in the NHL that was more extreme in the difference between how difficult the top sixes matchups were versus the bottom six, for instance, up front. Mm-hmm. Um, Travis Green is a player that deploys his players on the extremes, both one way, like we've seen with Bo Horvat and him get it, and him kind of getting thrown into the wolves, but also in sheltering certain guys. Like Adam Gaudet was a player who, when he was here, he was one of the most sheltered players in the NHL. So I think, you know, the matchup data that I've kind of seen does still show that Ulevi was fairly protected. Right, and I think one of the guys that did see some of that protection early on, but man, he you know ends up playing 21 games in his final game, and we've touched on him a little bit. Like, I, you know, a lot of people had him as the number two or number three guy that coming into this year behind Vasily Pod Colson and Niels Huglander. And we're talking about Jack Rathbone here, who came in and looked great. I mean, you see him put up three points in eight games, and that gets you excited. You saw what he did in the AHL. That was getting everyone very excited to see what he was able to do. And then to see him get, you know, just kind of finish up there, those last five games, he's played over 15 minutes in each of those games. That's that's a big step in the right direction for the people that want to see him in the Canucks top four next year. And if you're looking at a top four, you know, hoping that I think a lot of people are hoping that Hamannick returns. And we'll touch on Hamannick a little bit later. But that top four, you know, sneaking in Jack Rathbone to potentially play with a Hamannick or play with a Nate Schmidt, like is that the right move? Do you think right now coming out of camp, just from what you saw him do in those eight games? Yeah, for starters, I mean, I was very impressed with what I saw from Jack Rathbone, like. You know, we talk about Ole Levy, but Jack Rathbone is what a real high-end defensive prospect looks like. Right. And I think the level of, I mean, we all knew what he could do with the puck, right? Um, in terms of him being such a dynamic puck transporter, the way he can kind of escape pressure in the in the defensive zone, um, that's a, a, a skill set that you can never have enough of, the way he walks the blue line, the rocket of a shot from the point. And, and we saw it with his uh, first career NHL goal against the Oilers as well. We all we always knew that those elements were going to be there, and, and just the overall confidence level that uh, that he brings to the table. He, you know, there are certain players that have kind of the it factor, and you know what I mean by that is they have, you know, when young players kind of enter the league and kind of make their first, you know, make their debut and, and kind of, you know, make their first sort of impact. There are two kinds of of players that you can kind of sniff sniff right away. Um, number one is the kind of guys that from day one, they're not nervous. They're confident in their skill set, and they don't just want to hang in the NHL. They want to be legitimate difference makers. They want to make things happen. They want to play minutes. They want to create things offensively. They want to take chances. 
And then there, there are the guys that, um, and, and some of the guys that fall into the latter, latter category can still work, work themselves up to being really good NHL players. But the other guys that um, are trying to play mistake-free hockey, which is completely understand, they're more so focused on, okay, how to gain the, gain the trust of the coaching staff first and foremost. And that's kind of maybe where a guy like Cole fell uh, into when we watched him play. Um, Rathbone was in the former category, and that it factor we saw it from Quinn Hughes when he had his any when he had his first kind of cameo, and so I was really impressed by Jack Rathbone there. And kind of what I was talking about, you know, we knew what he could do with the puck, but it was what he did without the puck in terms of that defensive maturity, um, and the overall kind of I don't know if steadiness is the right word because you know that's not kind of the role he plays. But he played. Mis- he generally played mistake-free hockey, right? Like this is a player who, um, when you watch him in college, he was prone to once in a while, you know, skating himself into a little bit of trouble, um, doing a little bit too much, and sometimes, you know, pinching in certain situations where he'd he, where he'd get himself out of position, or maybe just forcing a pass once in a while. We didn't really see any of that at uh, at the NHL level in his cameo and. You know, the way that he was able to defend the rush, for instance, Rathbone isn't the biggest guy, but um, just the way he was able to leverage his mobility mm-hmm. um, to aggressively close gaps um, was really encouraging to see. Like, this is a blue line that concedes the defensive um, the defensive zone too easily. Like, teams have such an easy time entering Vancouver's zone with control. And to see a player like Rathbone just, you know, eliminate time and space so quickly... Um, was really impressive, especially in the in the game or two where you know he was playing with Hamidic and got some minutes against uh, the Mark Shifley Kyle Connor line, right? Like that to yeah. me was really really impressive. And so you know, with all that still said, I mean it was just eight games, and I think you know anytime you have a young defenseman, um, and I think just generally we kind of see this around the league is it takes these guys. Um, you know, there are bum- there are going to be bumps in the road, right? Like we kind of said that, for instance, about you know, not, and, I'm not, and I'm not trying to compare Hughes and Rathbone by any stretch of the imagination because Hughes is a completely different player. He's a special talent, and that's not really a fair comparison for Rathbone at all. But even when Hughes came in, everyone was talking about okay, there are going to be some bumps in the road, and with Hughes, his rookie season was excellent, but then we saw some of the obstacles that he faced in year two. Um, and all that to say is if a guy like Hughes is facing some of those challenges despite being such an elite player with such a bright future, then I think it's important to like be mindful. to You have to put Rathbone in a position to succeed going into next season. And so, you know, despite how high I am on Rathbone, despite how much I love him uh, as a player and despite how positive I am uh, on his future projection as a top four piece, I'm not sure if we've seen enough yet to confidently pencil him in as uh, a top four option right now. I'd much rather prefer that you have someone else on a second pair to start the season. And, you know, let's say there's a third pair um, that Rathbone kind of plays on and he's in a role where, you know, if he, if he crushes it, great. You can move him up the lineup. Um, and he can earn that opportunity. But I'd prefer if going into next season that the, that the Canucks kind of are mindful not to ask too much too soon out of him, despite how um, how impressed I was by his overall debut. 
And I, I agree with a lot of what you said there. And I think that what I've seen just from his AHL and NHL games is when he's on a pairing where he's depended on to be the primary passer and the primary puck mover out of a pairing, like that's when you're going to see his best. I don't think you see a lot of what you want to see from Jack Rathbone when he's playing with a guy like Tyler Myers, right? Who wants to move the puck in those first couple games. It felt like Tyler Myers was, you know, didn't even know Rathbone was on the ice with him or wasn't really aware of the talent that Rathbone has, but you brought up the game that he played with Hamnick and it's like, wow. Okay. When he's playing with a guy who's going to help him in the defensive zone, who's going to let him be a little bit more free. I think that's when you're going to get the best out of Rathbone. And I wonder how that fit does match up with Nate Schmidt, who would, in most likelihood, be the guy, if he was going to be a top-four player, that's probably his partner, unless you want to move Quinn Hughes to play with Nate Schmidt, something that you and I and Quads talked about in the studio last offseason. But how would you shape it out, though? Like, if you were to put Rathbone into your top four, would it take something like putting him with Hamnick to make you more comfortable with it? Because if you're going to have Myers on your third pairing, he's going to play a ton of five-on-five minutes. We know that, whether it's with Yolevi or somebody else. That's kind of the way that I see it playing out, but I'm not. I'm just not really sure who the right guy on the right side would be for Jack Rathbone. Like to you, do you like the feeling of Travis Hamnick, even though you're taking him away from Quinn Hughes, who you know showed a lot of success this year together, or is it Nate Schmidt for you because simply he's another veteran who, though he had some really bad giveaways this year, for the most part played played pretty good defensively. Yeah, it's a really good question. I think it ultimately comes down to, you know, first of all, I completely agree in that you're going to see the best out of Rathbone when he has the freedom to pinch, to skate with the puck, to be the primary offensive piece on a pairing. And I think, as you kind of alluded to, in the first couple of games when he was with Myers, um, Myers was, you know, and it's not his fault, right? Like, that's just Myers' game. He yeah, exactly. is a similar player stylistically, but... Rathbone almost had to like if you were kind of watching them play it was it almost seemed as if Rathbone was had to kind of play the role of steady veteran who <laughs> is 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 being just responsible and not trying to do too much where like Rathbone I think in his first game what was it um he had to defend like two or three odd man rushes it was pretty insane um even he had one with McDavid barreling down on him but yeah um so yeah i definitely agree there um and i think you know as for you know hamannick or schmidt it i think it comes down to who's going to be your matchup guy um schmidt was used as um you know alongside edler as the club's primary matchup defender um and so if you're going to deploy if you're going to use schmidt against the other team's best lines again well then i'd don't want Rathbone in that situation um, next to Schmidt. And in that case, you probably just go Hughes and Schmidt. And, you know, that's your pairing that you use against the other team's best, uh, best uh, lines. And then you try, and then you can go with Rathbone uh, Hamannick there, where again, Hamannick kind of functions as the defensive safety net. Um, who can help him in the own zone and is going to kind of be stay at home and just let Rathbone kind of do his thing and express himself offensively. So uh, that's how I'd kind of approach it that way. It just comes down to if Schmidt's going to be your hard match guy, then I wouldn't want Rathbone thrust into that kind of high leverage role right away. And that's that's a really interesting point because like, the matchup role, right? Like the the top guys on your defense that are going to play defense and match up against the other team's forward lines 
if you have Rathbone and you have Quinn Hughes on separate pairings, you're not getting one of those in your top four. You almost have to make your third pairing your matchup line. And if you have Tyler Myers there, it's probably not your matchup line either. So that's kind of the tough part. Like, I look at Calgary and I look what they did with Chris Tanev and Noah Hannafin, right? Like, that was the matchup pairing. That got a lot of matchups. But at the same time, they had a line like the Giordano pairing that was able to play against other teams' top lines. It just feels different here with the type of players that the Vancouver Canucks are going to have. And you just don't have that defensive pairing that's going to be the one that goes out and faces the other team's top line. I just, you know, if Edler's not there, I don't see that pairing being a thing into the future for the Vancouver Canucks. Do you think that, like, is that a progressive way of maybe thinking about it, or is that something that could end up hurting the team, just not having that that solid two defensive guys who go up and match, match up against the other team's first lines? Yeah, no, uh, I definitely think, and it kind of goes back to what we talked about earlier, right? Where you need, you know... Like the Canucks' biggest long-term need, I think, and these kind of players are hard, are really hard to find, is a right shot, two-way horse that can just eat minutes in all situations, um, and can kind of play. You know, we talked about last offseason, for example, the idea of of offshooting a guy like uh, Eric Chernak. Like that's the kind of player mm-hmm. that this club needs to kind of fill that matchup role and to fill that stylistic element to kill penalties. Um, and to complement, you know, the club's, you know, more um, offensively mobile defensemen. And so I think from that standpoint, it is kind of, you know, an area of long-term need. And it's kind of why um, I wouldn't be opposed to bringing a guy like Hammock back as a stopgap, even though ideally he's not a player that would be in your top four full-time at this, at this point in his career. Um, but I think when you're talking about a potential, you know, matchup pairing, like Quinn Hughes did that kind of role last year with Chris Tanev, right? So he's had that experience of playing against top lines. Of course, having Tanev next to him was such a big help. And um, I think the the fit with Schmidt in Vancouver in year one didn't turn out the way the, the club would have hoped. Um, like, there's no doubt about that. And I think... Uh, because of Schmidt falling short of expectations, the club really missed the kind of value that Tanev brought in that kind of a role. And it was part of the reason that Hughes was able to thrive in those matchup minutes. Um, although I think part of his sophomore struggles were a lot more than just he didn't play with Chris Tanev, to be, to be clear on that front. So I think as you talk about a matchup pair for next season, you know, again, and, and this is why... Like, I think they need another top four guy. Like, I don't just think you can look at this top four group and say, okay, we're going to bring Edler back and, you know, we're going to bring Havnick back and, you know, Rathbone's going to be our one big addition and, you know, that's it. That's a blue line next year because I just think defensively you're not going to be good enough um, in terms of suppressing shots and chances against. I think you need um, another top four piece and, you know, as it is right now, like, on paper, if you're asking me, Harmon, what's your, you know, who's your match? What's your matchup here? What are you doing uh, next season? Then you may you may go with, you know, if if we're in agreement that Edler isn't isn't fit to play that high leverage of a role anymore, then maybe you go Hughes Schmidt, um, and that's your you load up your top pair and, and you you have those guys go up against your against the other team's top lines. Um, 
but yeah, that's you know that that has to be one of the biggest uh, priorities that the club looks to address in the offseason is finding. And it's not going to be easy finding uh, a top four stud that um, that can kind of stabilize things on the back end from a defensive standpoint. And I think that what you look at when you look at the players that are on this roster going into next season, and I'm I'm in the boat of kind of assuming that Travis Hamannick is going to be back. I think that they're going to try and work something out with him. You know, he worked well with Quinn Hughes, so I'm I'm kind of penciling that together as a pairing for next year. And then what you talk about there is like the interesting thing is the fact that Nate Schmidt can play both sides. Like, you don't have to go out and get a right-shot guy, right? I mean, you can get a guy who you trust defensively, who maybe is just kind of like a younger version of Alex Edler, right? I think that finding yeah. a guy who can play the left side and be a good defensive defenseman on the left side is just simply easier to find than what it is on the right side. So I think that that might be something that the Canucks want to explore. I'm not sure how far they can go deep into free agency or how they can add a guy. I'm hoping that something with the expansion draft, something shakes loose for a guy that, like you kind of mentioned, would make you, Harmon Dial, pretty happy with a guy that could slide in to be a top-four player. And then that opens up a third pairing of potentially Rathbone and Tyler Myers or wherever you want to fit Edler into it if he comes back. But is that a big deal, do you think, for making your second pairing? If Nate Schmidt's there, like the option is there to go out and get a left or a right-shot guy. Does that help the Canucks a lot as they kind of go into free agency here and try and find a guy for likely it's going to have to be pretty cheap after we see what they do with the Hughes and Pedersen contracts. But does that make it a lot easier to find a top-four defenseman who fits in, even if it is just like a, a guy who's just a number four? Because Nate Schmidt can be your number three, and that second pairing can be your defensive pairing if you find the right guy to play with Schmidt there. Absolutely. I mean, if you... Um, kind of operate on that assumption, um, you know, like in normal circumstances, one of the targets that I, you know, would be looking at coming into free agency is um, Jake McCabe um, of the Buffalo Sabres. I've really liked his game for a long time is someone who has experience playing tough matchups, not a flashy player by any stretch of the imagination. Like uh-huh. this is a guy that uh, is never going to put up a lot of points, but he's sturdy defensively and he kills penalties. And, um, again, he has that experience playing against top lines and there's an overall steadiness to his game that I really like. He's 27 years old. Um, so that, you know, would be the kind of player that, yeah, you could try and bring into the fold. Although, you know, the, the, you know, one hesitation that I have now is McCabe missed most of the season with an injury. So you have to, you know, be careful about the health component and making sure that he can still be that caliber, caliber of a player moving forward. Um, but yeah, I mean, it kind of opens up your options if, you know, Schmidt and, and Schmidt is better on the right side. Like let's mm-hmm. make no bones about it. We kind of saw him at times, uh, on the left side with Myers and just Schmidt Myers, just in my opinion, never really clicked. It never really worked out. Um, and I think Schmidt is the kind of player where, I mean, this season he, was asked to do was asked to carry so much of the transition burden um, because he had to play alongside Adler and and we know about his limitations skating wise at helping on breakouts and you know a lot of the times where Adler would pinch and get caught flat footed and um, Schmidt would kind of be left out to dry a little bit um, so I think he's the kind of player where if the environment around him improves as well like if you have the right D partner next to him. I think, I I think you should expect more from Schmidt too, um, which would be really helpful for this club to have another high end top four um, contributor, which isn't what we kind of, which isn't the level of production that we got from Schmidt this, this past year. So 
Um, that would be huge. Um, although the other thing that's going to be interesting is whether Schmidt's going to be back himself, right? Um, at the deadline, there were, um, you know, rumors kind of swirling about is Schmidt potentially, is his name being floated because of the poor fit? Um, and, you know, we had, I think that was Elliot Friedman that talked about it then. And since then, there if you read between the lines, I think it's kind of like you've heard a few people in the media kind of speculate about could one of these sides be looking for a fresh start? No, 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 I'm not. To be very clear, I'm not reporting anything. Um, but the fact that you do kind of see whispers in the media, like I do wonder if the Canucks look at that kind of fit and wonder if he's, you know, if they need a fresh start there and, you know, maybe that's an avenue to clear salary. But um, then again, the case for him coming back would be, you know, if you move Schmidt, how are you going to replace his minutes? So, totally. yeah, I mean, you know, that's that's one of those situations where, again, it's why, like, even if the Canucks wanted to move Schmidt, like, the thing I keep coming back to is, you know, how are you going to ice a competitive top four then? Um, and so as you kind of build the, build the top four, if you are – I'm going to bring him back then I do like the flexibility and versatility versatility that he has and being able to play the right side and as you mentioned acquiring a left shot guy is going to be easier than it is uh, a right shot guy and even a guy like you know Vince Dunn could be on the trade market for St. Louis so um, there will be options to consider into the offseason for sure but that has to be an area of upgrade as uh, is finding another top four piece. Yeah, and I think you have to look at the value of the player, too, and you have to say that, you know, like, Nate Schmidt has some of the highest value on the Canucks players that could potentially be traded, right? I mean, you, you know that he's able to to bring a lot to the team, and maybe that, that long contract maybe holds it back a little bit, but just the fact that they were able to get him on a third-round pick, if, if there is a deal out there and the fit doesn't feel so right, I don't think it's just people in the media saying it. It's a lot of people watching him play, that you know, just Canucks fans saying, like, yeah, he's a, he's a good player, but I think he can be better in a different role. And I just don't know if that role is going to be here for him in the future. And now you, you throw a guy like Jack Rathbone, who's really impressed a lot of people in here. And if there is value there for Schmidt in a trade block, I mean, you, you got to explore it anyway. So we'll see what happens there. Uh, but I think we're going to cut to break here. Uh, I think we've pretty much covered the defense at whole uh, here. So we, we won't talk anything about defensemen in the second half of the episode but we'll throw to a quick break we'll come back we got uh, a few things to talk about with Travis Green obviously and then some forwards I kind of want to dive into it with you about who we could potentially see in the lineup next year so uh, you guys keep it here we're going to throw to a quick ad break and we'll see you guys on the other side all right you guys all know about Parallel 49 Beer from our commercials here on the show and now we have a new announcement hello peach bod that's right it's not all about the beach bod this summer it's all about the peach bod this summer this one's an interesting one folks a sparkling peach ale so you're getting a beer with peach flavor on it but it's also high in carbonation it's definitely a different one and i highly recommend going out there and giving it a try if you're into a peach flavored beer and that's something you know i'm pretty damn into i gotta get out and try it myself pretty soon here i will report back on the show about this uh, so go out there and try the Peach Bod for yourself from Parallel 49 Beer. Check them out on Instagram at Parallel 49 as in the numbers and then beer that's Parallel 49 Beer. And be sure to check out their website for more information about how you can get beer through Uber Eats. That's right, through those food delivery apps. Uber Eats, you can get your delivery from Parallel 49 Beer. Be sure to check out their website, Parallel49Brewing.com. 
That's Parallel, the number is 49brewing.com. The pandemic and a slow economy are making it tough on a lot of people to find steady, good-paying work. But one industry is bucking that trend. Construction companies are hiring and need more workers than ever before. Upload your resume to icba.ca and get noticed. With more than 3,000 employers on our ICBA team, our employment network can connect you to businesses crewing up for the 2021 construction season. Trades jobs that pay well, offer excellent benefits, invest in safety training, and give a firm career foundation. Check out icba.ca slash jobs. And thank you very much to our sponsors there. We're going to get right back to action here with Harm, who's filling in for quads this week, uh, which I'm excited for because we don't have to talk about goalies, right, Harm? You don't want to talk goalies with me? No, definitely not my uh, element of expertise. Uh, I, I leave the goalie chat chat up to you know woodley and and quads for sure on this podcast so um leave me out of the goalie discussion i can i i you know my analysis is limited to thatcher demko is really good at stopping pox (laughs) i i'm the same way (laughs) yeah it's like quads quads will go start going into all this stuff and i just like i'm like save it for woodley like talk to woodley i don't want to i don't want to do that here so we're going to talk about uh, we're going to talk about the forward group a little bit, but first, like I think one of the quotes that came out from almost every player was, you know, something that I think we expected. We weren't going to hear any player come out there and bury the coach and say that they they want change at the coaching group. I didn't think that this team was the type of players that was going to do that. A lot of support from the players today in the Zoom calls that we talked about. So I just want to get your feeling, Harm. Like there's going to be a lot of coaching openings around the nhl travis green is going to have some options you know there's some big markets mentioning new york and potentially some other teams as well that travis green could be interested in heck seattle down the road i'm sure would like a a younger coach like travis green i just right now harm do you think he's back next year or do you think he's gone it's it's really fascinating because if you ask me um let me let me frame it to you this way. I think you know we've consistently heard that Travis Green really wants to be back in Vancouver, and that's definitely kind of been my impression the whole time. Like for him as a coach, like yeah, there are extra options that open when you hit the market, but ultimately, it's not just that Travis is a BC guy; it's how he's kind of come up in the organization, and like he has. It's not just how long he's been the head coach in Vancouver, but how long he was in Utica and just the overall history he's had with the organization now. Um, And, you know, he's been here during the leanest rebuilding years and he's worked tirelessly with this core group of players. He's ushered in Brock Besser, Elias Pettersson, Quinn Hughes, and he's kind of put all that time and effort in, to kind of building uh, a culture and kind of ramping up towards something bigger here where you are hoping to turn the corner. And he's coached some of these guys and some of the players in Utica, uh, of course, as well. So he's invested a lot into this kind of core group of players. And because of that, I think he really wants to see it through, right? Like after all the effort you kind of put in to nurturing this project you know, just think about it. If you were in his shoes, you'd want to finish it, right? Like yeah. you wouldn't want to just, you know, leave when things are are at the point where you know after the bubble last year, like when hope is on the horizon, when you're actually a group that's capable of maybe doing something. 
And I especially think that Green really likes this. Um, again, this core group of players, he, he, he feels a connection to them. And, um, you know, genuinely, I think he feels, he feels confident in the team's long-term future. And, and, and he does believe genuinely that they can build into being a, a cup contender one day. And I think, um, with how long he's worked on this, that Green wants to, for that reason, come back. And so when you have that kind of situation, um, and of course, you know, this is the case where, I mean, if, if the club doesn't want to bring him back, I mean, you know, Green's not going to be in, in a spot where he's heartbroken and he, you know, he can't look at his other options. No, I mean, he's, he's going to look at, um, at his other options and he is going to be um, highly sought after. But, I, you know, his, obviously his preference is, first and foremost, to be in Vancouver if possible. Um, and when when that kind of desire is there on the part of uh, a free agent, then I think you never close the door on it. And I do think it's fascinating that we kind of saw, you know, Rick Dollywell today on the Donnie and Dolly show talk about how he's feeling a lot more optimistic than he was last week about that. And so I do wonder if, um, you know, it, I think ultimately it comes down to is ownership going to be willing to, you know, for Travis Green specifically pay up and, and how much confidence does Jim Benning have in him? And I think with the Sedins coming in, the Sedins think very highly of Travis Green too. So I wonder how much of an influence that could be playing in this. Like perhaps there's, there's a situation, situation where with the Twins coming in, they lobby and, um, you know that kind of enhances the case from an orga- from the organization's perspective for bringing Travis back. You know, I think it's still ultimately up in the air. Um, that's kind of how all uh, how a lot of negotiations these days uh, feel. And so it's it's one of those situations where again, I think there is a desire on the coach's side. We're still waiting to kind of see if you know from the team's perspective if they're willing to really pay up. And and that's kind of the power dynamic here mm-hmm. i i'm just wondering because like we we obviously heard that jim benning is going to be back for next year Elliot friedman reporting that earlier in the week and to me it just feels like if benning is going to make a move at the coaching spot like this is this would be the time to do it because simply if he wants to bring in that big name and i know i think drancer and jay pat were talking about Claude julian like if this is the final arrow in jim benning's quiver like this would be the time to bring in a big-name head coach. This would be the time where Francesco Aquilini would probably like to see a big-name head coach come in. And if that just doesn't work with Jim Benning, then I think that that's the final straw. Like, if the if the big-name coach can't come in here and make this group get to the next level, then that's kind of the final straw for Benning. But I agree with a lot of what you're saying because I personally would like to see Travis Green back. I think he's done a good job with these young players. I think he's got a good relationship with these young players. And I think that... You know, you talked about the young players that have come in and, and had good success under him. Like, no better example than Niels Huglander, who nobody expected to see this from him this year. Nobody expected him in the top six, and he's there at day one on training camp with Travis Green as his coach. I just think that we're at the point right now where, like, you know, I think this is something that we've heard a lot about with Ian Clark as well, and we don't have to open up that casket. But, like, with Travis Green, if the deal's not done right now... The only thing that's me like keeping me thinking that he is coming back is just because like we're in a pandemic, everything's a little bit different. But like every other situation where you have a coach going into this spot, 
going into the off season. Like we talk about going into the season without a contract. He's going into the off season without a contract. Now that just, to me, that doesn't scream that the coach is coming back, no matter how well he's worked with this group and how much potential there still is for him to have success here. I just, I I'm leaning towards it, not happening. Like I, I, I don't know anything. I'm not talking to people in the organization, but my feel is just that Travis won't be back and I'll be pleasantly surprised if he is. Yeah. I mean, if, if it happens, it's going to have to happen quickly. Um, I, I, you know, this isn't one of those things where you can drag it on and, um, and kind of go about it that way. Um, you're going to have to make that decision pretty quick. And I think part of it too, is kind of establishing the certainty of what exactly, like we know Benning's coming back now, but are there other changes on the horizon? We have, we of course heard about the Sedins, you know, there were, there was Jeff Courtnell before that, um, you know, is there going to be a president of hockey ops? Like, is that still a possibility? And I think I wonder if some of that decision-making and finding certainty on that front could affect, um, you know, what happens with green. But I, I agree. Like this is probably going to have to happen sooner rather than later, if it is going to happen at all. Um, but I do think that, you know, this isn't just lip service that we're hearing from the players. Like by all accounts, from everything that I've heard, um, Green has the the majority backing of the guys in the room. They want him to return. And I think, too, when you look at a lot of the work that he has done with the young players, like people are perhaps a little bit critical at times of, you know, maybe wanting to see more chance, maybe wanting to see Oli Levy get more of a chance. But I, I think Green has shown himself to be, like when you have a, when you have a young team, He's shown the, the the fact that he is willing to trust guys in high leverage situations if they're ready for it, right? Right. Go back to Pedersen. Year one coming into Vancouver, everyone thought he was going to start the year on the wing because that's where he had played the entire year in Vakwa. You know, he was a sl- slender, undersized, uh, undersized guy. Um, you know, you, people were wondering about the weight. I think a lot of head coaches would have started him at the wing. Green sticks him at center day when a camp and, and Pedersen never looks back, right? Like that's that's a key decision that I'm not sure how many other coaches would have made since they're so risk averse. Uh, Quinn Hughes from day one, again, undersized guy. You knew Quinn Hughes was going to play. That wasn't a question, but to deploy him against top lines and give him the reins as, hey, you're our number one defenseman from day one. Like it sounds like such a simple thing, right. but trust me, a lot of there are a lot of coaches out there that would have looked at Quinn Hughes and said, okay, we need to shelter him uh, as he's kind of working his way through the league. Um, he'll get his power play time. He'll get his offensive starts. But we don't necessarily want him on our top top pair playing um, heavy minutes right away. And yet Green gave him that rope. You um, saw it with Nils Hoaglander, top six right of the camp, right? And deployed on that Horvat line. And this is one where I personally... Like, I didn't expect Hoagland to get that level of trust from day one to play against the opposition's best lines as a 20-year-old rookie. But he got that opportunity um, when Jack Rathbone came. Uh, he got minutes, and it wasn't just that he got minutes, but we saw in a couple of Winnipeg games where um, he got a little bit of, you know, Green wasn't afraid to use him against some of Winnipeg's top six forwards, right? So I really like that component where um, he is willing to he's not shy about putting his young players in high leverage situations. I think that's part of the reason why 
Um, he has the confidence and respect of guys in the locker room. So, I mean, yeah, I I am personally in the camp that he's generally done a pretty good job with this team and should come back, but it uh, it remains to be seen. It's It's still completely up in the air. Do you get the feeling, though, that maybe like a move to a big name, whether it be, you know, Rick Tockett or potentially Gerard Gallant or potentially one of these other names that are out there. Like, do you get the feeling that that might be the next step in where management and more specifically ownership kind of wants to go with this team as a new, you know, we bring in the Sedins, we bring in this big coach. Like, can you see a road where that really happens here in Vancouver? Definitely. I mean, if Travis is not coming back, um, yeah, I would not be surprised at all if they went for um, one of the bigger names here. Um, and there are some good coaches out there. Um, some a couple of guys you just mentioned, um, you know, Bruce Bruce Boudreau, uh is uh, still out there as well. And um, the only kind of reservation I have is about uh, you know, like a lot of, or at least some of these coaches. Like in Claude Julian's case, for example, you can be a good coach and yet not be a great fit for a young team, right? Like I think back to Elaine Vigneault. I think very highly of him as a coach based off what he did in Vancouver. But we all know how he dealt with young players and he wasn't really good with developing them and being able to trust them in higher positions. And he was a guy that leaned on his vets, uh, liked to lean on his vets. And so sometimes you have coaches that are really good tacticians um, are you know top class, but they're perhaps not a fit for a young team, and so that's just the one thing that the Canucks have to be cognizant of as they go into a potential coaching search. Is don't just bring in a um, a highly touted coach who has um, all, who who has a lot of esteem around the league and, and has a high reputation. Be sure that he is also the right fit for your young players because. You're going to have to integrate Pod Colson in pretty soon here. And let's be honest, when it comes to Betsy, um, impact um, older guys on this roster. Like you're going to, if you're the Vancouver Canucks moving forward, you're going to live and die by your young guys. Yeah. And especially you have your undersized guys, right? Like you have Hoaglander, you have Hughes, you, you have Rathbone. and you want these guys to play. Um, you don't want them to be in a situation where a coach doesn't trust them for whatever reason. Because they're maybe still they're maybe still stuck in an older way of looking at the game. So that's just the one thing to be cognizant of when you're thinking about a guy like, say, Claude Julien or or uh, Gerard Gallant, um, is to be mindful of making sure that the fit is right and and that it's not just a big name as well. I'm wondering, like, there's another name that I've seen out there, and I've heard that he's had an interview with the New York Rangers. He, you know, he coached Pedersen three years ago or four years ago, however, it was at Vacqua. Uh, Sam Hallam, who's 41 years old. He's won the SHL championship three of the past seven years. He's, like I said, 41 years old, a younger guy. He's worked with Pedersen. Like, I don't think we're at the level of, like, a LeBron James bringing in whatever coach he wants, but this guy's got a really proven track record for a young coach in the SHL. Do you think that there's any chance that they go in that direction with another up-and-coming guy who's actually, you know, even younger than uh, Travis Green? I'd be surprised. Um, And the reason I say that is because... Uh, you know, when it comes to Hallam, he correct me and correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think he's really coached. He's been a head coach in North America yet. Like it's yeah. it's been over, 
in Sweden where you have different factors. Like it's a, it, I don't want to say it's a completely different game, but it is very different still stylistically where in Sweden, because of the bigger ice surface, it's so much more tactical. It's so much totally. more, uh, uh, so much more about puck possession. Um, it's it's a slower league where you have more time and space to make plays, so it's a lot more methodical. And so the coaching style has to be quite different. And so the fact that he doesn't have experience in North America, um, I'd be surprised if they personally went in that direction. Yeah, I was a little surprised to hear that uh, he had an interview with the Rangers. I felt like, you know, that, that yeah. like in New York, that feels like the place that is going to get the big name. Uh, but to hear the other interview kind of, kind of, you know, made me think about the Canucks, I guess, a little bit. The fact that he has the, the, you know, the relationship with Elias Patterson, who's outright the Canucks' best player. I just, you know, trying to tie a couple things together here. But you know, a couple of young players are going to be coming into this team next year, Harmon. I want to talk about some of the forwards as we kind of close out here. Like, I, I, I mean, I watch a lot of Huglander. I watch a lot of Pod Colson. I am way more confident that Pod Colson would be able to jump into the NHL in the role that Huglander did and be successful. But Huglander's proved me wrong. He's done an incredible job of doing it. Should I be more excited about Pod Colson after seeing what Huglander did this year? Or should, you know, should I expect to see Pod Colson still have to be playing on a fourth line to start the season and working his way up? Where do you kind of sit on that spot with Pod Colson for next year? Yeah, it's, uh, it's a really good question. I think with Pod Colson... Again, I'm really high long term on on the kind of impact that he could be able that he could be able to make in Vancouver's top nine. But um, question I kind of have is, you know, when it comes to and we saw him really kind of start to take the next step um, as he got more opportunity, particularly in the in the playoffs. But this is still by and large a player that um, wasn't given a whole lot of rope um, to play top six minutes the way. Uh, Nils Hoaglander was and wasn't quite able to express himself offensively as a result. And so I wonder if it's going to take him a little bit of time to kind of hit the ground running from that perspective. Um, again, I, I, we've talked about this before in the show. His 2A game is very advanced and he's NHL ready from that perspective without a shadow of doubt. Um, but uh, offensively, I, I, I'd be curious to see how much of an impact he's going to make from year one. I'd suspect that um, I'd, I'd be, I wouldn't count on Podkoles in, in year one being as effective or, or putting up the kind of point totals that a Hoaglander did. you got to keep in mind, only Hoaglander was top 50 in the NHL for 505 points. Right. Like that's, it cannot be overstated how impressive that it, that was to achieve mm-hmm. where he was a first-line point producer at evens. Um, he scored more five and five points than the likes of Alex Ovechkin, TJ Oshie, Elias Lindholm, Tyler Toffoli. Like, Hoaglander set the bar incredibly high, and he shattered all expectations. And um, I think it's just important with Pod Colson, um, and just generally, I like to be conservative when projecting prospects. I'd, I'd rather, you know, kind of pencil them in conservatively and hope that they can do more rather than. Um, kind of have them, you know, pencil it into a top six spot and then have them potentially fall short and maybe not be ready. Um, so in Pod Colson's situation, from a two-way perspective, like there's no doubt that he's NHL ready, uh, but I'm not sure how much of a box boxcar impact we're going to see from day one in terms of 
you know, him scoring a bunch of points and things like that. I do wonder if he'll have to kind of work his way up the lineup and, and kind of go the Bo Horvat route where it's more slow and gradual progression for him. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting. Like the, I just pull out the numbers here to see what they were playing because I know Huglander was playing third-line minutes in Sweden. He finished the year with 14.02 as his average in the SHL this year. Uh, funny thing about that is Pod Colson's playoff numbers in the 16 games, the exact same amount of ice time. So I, I want to ask about Pod Colson coming in because – you know, we didn't get to see Nils Huglander play three on three this season in overtime. We, were, I think we, I don't think we saw him in a shootout. Did you? Do you remember a shootout? I don't think so, right? Not off the top of my head, I but I'm not so very either. good at remembering so, these kind of things. So what I want to ask with Pod Colson is one of the spots where I find that he plays his best hockey is how aggressive he is on the penalty kill. Coming in as a 20 year old, do you think he hops right into the NHL on the penalty kill, or is he another guy who just simply needs to? You know, needs to learn the NHL before he's given those type of minutes, or is he a guy that, because he thrives so well on the penalty kill and has proven it at every level that he's played at, including the KHL, which you know a lot of people argue that is the second best league in the world, is he a guy that can hop right into penalty kill time for the Vancouver Canucks at the NHL? I wouldn't rush into it personally. I think absolutely, Pod Colson has the defensive commitment, the wherewithal, the intelligence to be a PK piece. Long term, but um, for me anyway, the number one priority for for me, if I'm looking to develop pod goals and then trying to keep in mind that this is a player that's, you know, his English has improved, but it's going to be a bit of a culture shock for him coming to Vancouver. Yeah. Um, you know, he's, it's probably going to take him, it's going to be in a very strange experience kind of trying to integrate himself on and off the ice. So I'm not sure, especially with the communication side of it, you know, how much you want to put on his plate right away. I'd much rather try and um, getting uh, get him up and running and figuring out the system at 5-on-5 five five and trying to develop his offensive skills first and foremost because I think his the floor is already, like, we know it's there. Um, as, you know, a player that'd be able to help out a bottom six in a grinding kind of role, I'm not worried about, like, the penalty killing, whether you whether you work work on that with him, for next season or two years from now or three years from now, like it's always going to be there. Like you don't forget how to kill penalties or anything like that. And that is a skill that you can kind of craft and work on when you have the kind of two way details that Pod Colson has. But this is the critical stage in his development point where you want to ensure that you're growing him offensively. And so that would be my priority more so is okay, like let's get him up and running on the second power play unit and get him learning to fit um how learn, learning getting him to learn that fit um systemically there um on 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 the man advantage and so i'd be careful not to put too much on his plate uh from day one um but then again if 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 you really want to use him uh from day one at the pk you you could um I, i'm just trying to think more holistically and, and keep in mind um that this is going to be a very um big adjustment and move for him mm-hmm. yeah i mean just, just as a point of like living right i mean like he's been in russia yeah. his whole life it's gonna be massive change for him well uh Har- harm i think we'll wrap things up here uh we'll do a quick betting segment uh the only thing i can say for odd shark our friends over there check them out at odd shark uh, i bet if you subscribe to the athletic you will be a smarter hockey mind that's my bet of the week uh and harm why don't you quickly <laughs> touch on uh Touch on your your latest one that you worked on with uh, Thomas Drantz here about the report cards that you put together, and maybe maybe you can sneak a letter grade in there, maybe one that might surprise people that uh, that aren't subscribed to the Athletic. 
Yeah, uh, so report card. Yeah, we have report cards, and we're going to have um, who stays, who goes, trying to decipher, you know, who could be back and who might be on the move uh, for tomorrow, I believe, and off for, for a surprise letter in. I'm trying to think. Um, did we have any hot takes? Um, trying to think. Um, the, the back end was interesting to try and kind of grade everyone relative to expectations. Um, I think, uh, uh, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think like, is, was there something that was really surprising or really controversial, but, uh, I'm going to have to, I guess, read through the comment section and see what really <laughs> caught people off guard. But we went deep on that. That was like 5,000 words. Damn. So like, if you want a deep dive into like every connect this year, um, then that is definitely something to check out. Awesome, man. Well, uh, yeah, people definitely have to check that out. If you aren't on The Athletic, you definitely should be. Uh, do, you, do you have your own promo code, Harm? I feel like I've asked you this before, but do you have a, a promo code for people, or is there one going on that you know about right now? Uh, I don't have, like, an individual one or anything like that, but I do think that if, you, that if, you're, uh, if you're a brand-new kind of subscriber, there's a $1 per month kind of promo for the next right. five days or something like that, where... I think all you got to do is like click on one of the articles on the web um, and there should be a prompt for like if you sign up, it's $1 a month to sign up. So that's that's a cool sale. Um, so take advantage of that if uh, you're interested and thanks for the plug, buddy. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, It's been a blast, Harmon. I appreciate you uh, taking some time out of your day to come and chat here. Absolutely, man. Thanks for having me. I think my, my phone just about died on there at the end, too. So good timing there. Uh, so we'll wrap things up. Uh, Harmon, appreciate you filling in for quads. Uh, anything else you wanted to close out with before I let you go? No, uh, that's about it, man. Just uh, really excited and looking forward to what's hopefully an eventful offseason. Absolutely, man. So uh, for Harmon Dial, my name is Chris Faber. And thank you very much for everyone for listening to another episode. And uh, we'll be back in a couple of days. Uh, we'll be back in a couple of days. I'm going to try and record with quads on Friday night and bring another episode for you guys at a regularly scheduled Saturday morning. Uh, so for Harmon Dial, my name is Chris Faber. And thank you for listening to another episode of The Canucks Conversation. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.